Welcome, <coughs> welcome and good morning. Uh, um, welcome to our event uh, on inclusive growth in the European Union. Thank you for making it. Uh, I know the traffic situation has been much worse than, than we all predicted, uh, so, it, so it's great to have you here. And for those of you who didn't manage, I hope you all follow me on live stream now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, so let me start uh, this event and let me start by, by really thanking the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth uh, for their financial support for our report, our research on the topic um, and the event today. Uh, the MasterCard Center was founded uh, on initiative of uh, its CEO, MasterCard CEO uh, Ajay Banga. And when I discussed uh, with Ajay more than one year ago, um, we discussed also inclusive growth in Europe, and he was actually very interested in the evidence. I think today, inclusive growth has really become a burning policy issues, issue. We have a US presidential candidate, Donald Trump, who is actually supported, arguably, by uh, quite a number of disenchanted people uh, in the middle class, whose real income has barely, if at all, grown in the last 30 years. But Europe is different from the US, isn't it? After all, income inequality in the European Union is among the lowest globally, thanks to some of the largest welfare states in the world. Yet, we have seen Brexit. And it may be no accident that Brexit has happened in one of the countries in the EU with the highest income inequality. And Joel Davash's empirical evidence shows that the likelihood to vote, to vote uh, for leave was actually larger in regions with higher income inequality. But inclusive growth is not just about income inequality. It's also about opportunity. It's about social mobility. It is about chances to find a job. It is about education. So my colleague, uh, Jolt uh, Davash, uh, and uh, our young fellow, Uri, um, have worked very hard to produce a report which we call Inclusive Growth in the European Union Under the Microscope. And I have also been happy to contribute to this report. The report provides a detailed description, and that's why we call it an Under the Microscope, and an analysis of the current state of inclusive growth uh, in the EU. I think we have almost 50 figures uh, in the report, which is also why we have not been able to finalize the editing and provide a printed copy today, but you will soon be able to get it on, uh, online uh, on our webpage. So again, let me uh, end my introductory remarks by welcoming you, thanking you for coming, uh, and thanking in particular the panelists uh, to talk about different aspects for inclusive growth today. The first panel will discuss why inclusive growth actually matters. The second panel looks at the impact of technological change and globalization on inclusiveness, while the last panel explores European policy for inclusive growth. So thank you again. Thank you to MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, and I very much look forward to the discussion today. Thank you. Thank you, Gunchan, for the introduction. And I would also like to thank MasterCard for <coughs> supporting our work. But this event is not, not, our, not about our work. Uh, we saw that uh, instead of giving a long presentation of our own report, uh, <coughs> we would invite uh, <coughs> um, 
very high-level people from various sectors of the economy and society <coughs> to discuss various aspects of inclusive growth. And uh, <coughs> that's why we are very, very pleased to have an excellent panel uh, here around me. Let me briefly introduce themselves the, the, in, a, in alphabetic order. <coughs> so first of all, the only lady in the group is Jana Heinsworth, who is the president of the, <coughs> of the social platform. Uh, and he's, she's also the, <coughs> the secretary general of, of Eurochild, uh, a European network <coughs> which promotes the rights and well-being of, of children and, and young in Europe. And as Guntram also emphasized, there are major problems in Europe with, uh, <coughs> with child poverty and uh, high youth unemployment. So we hope to hear a lot from her. Then second in the alphabetic order, <coughs> we have Stefan Hermans, <coughs> who is the head of cabinet <coughs> um, of, of Marianne Thyssen, the European Union Commissioner for Employment, Social Affairs, Skills and Labor. <coughs> then <coughs> on my left, uh, Tim Murphy, uh, the representative of MasterCard, he's member of the board <coughs> of the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. <coughs> uh, <coughs> and last but not least, but we are going in alphabetic order, we have <coughs> Luca Vicentini, who is the general secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. So the, <coughs> so the topic today uh, in this session is why inclusive growth is important. <coughs> and indeed, as Guntram also mentioned, there are, <coughs> there are, I think, a growing recognition that uh, inclusive growth is, is, is really crucial for long-term social but also economic sustainability. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> the key question we would, we would like to ask uh, in answering this panel is that, is that why, why it is the case? Uh, what are the specificities of Europe which makes it different from the, from the rest of the world? And also since we have a prominent policy maker in the, in the group, perhaps we will also hear a bit about <coughs> European policies. Um, our session is rather short, so <coughs> let me stop my, my introduction and ask our panelists to give initial remarks. <coughs> we thought to start with Stefan Hermann because he comes <coughs> from, from the European Commission, and then we follow in alphabetic order the other three, three speakers. So Stefan, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Zolt, and also thanks to Bruegel for the, uh, for the invitation and uh, putting this item on, on your agenda and organizing the session on inclusive growth inclusive growth in the European Union. And also thanks for putting a number of extremely pertinent questions on the table to be debated. It's very much uh, welcome and very much appreciated also on our side to have your input on that. Let me, let me start though by, by throwing in a question in a way, um, because when I look at your website, this is put under the topic macroeconomic and on governance. And obviously, and I think I see Luca laughing already, I think he knows where I'll be coming from. Um, because I, I want to pull this open a little bit more, uh, and I think it's very relevant for the discussion to have on the European Union also versus other parts of the world. And it's very much a question that what inclusive growth is referring to is actually reflected in our social model, or for some of you, in our social models, if you wish. It's in our way of life, as the President said in his State of the Union. So there are ethical questions underneath, there are hugely political questions underneath, and it is also legally, if I may even say so, constitutionally framed within the European Union. So we are talking actually about a subject which touches on the very fundamentals of the European Union, as captured in the Treaty on the European Union, as captured in the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And inclusive growth, in our view, is very much an expression 
of this objective. May I remind you that in the treaty, in Article 3, Paragraph 3 to be more precise, it's that the treaty calls there for a highly competitive social market economy aiming at full employment and social progress. So it's a fundamental objective in the European Union. And the treaty goes on to state that it shall combat social exclusion and discrimination, it shall promote social justice and protection, it shall promote equality between women and men, it shall promote solidarity between generations, <coughs> and it shall promote the protection of the rights of the child. So I only want to refer to this very basis, to these very fundamentals in the European Union to put the issue uh, in, in its wider political and legal context in the European Union. That obviously does have repercussions on the agenda of the European Union. And obviously, it has very strong repercussions on the work to be done within the Commission. And in the political guidelines of the President of this Juncker Commission, I mean, it comes out very strongly in uh, just the title. It's an agenda on jobs, on growth, on fairness, and also on democratic change. And every year, in the Commission work program, this is strongly reflected for initiatives that have to do directly with employment and social matters, but also very importantly with other parts of the agenda, with other parts of the work to be done in the European Union, whether it's now on the internal market or whether it's now on energy questions, just to give you an example. To stop on this intro, <coughs> I also want to flag that following the State of the Union of the President this year in September, that this is also now and, and the work done at the Bratislava uh, meeting, that this is also now entailed very explicitly in the Bratislava roadmap for the priorities for the 12 months ahead, particularly with respect to youth, to young people. <coughs> the European Union project, the integration project, has typically been one of convergence. I think it was the World Bank that said in 2012, the European Union is a convergence machine. Typically, our policies have also supported member states in helping that the children are having a better future, a better life than their parents. That's also part of our post-war model and paradigm we have been working in. So it was typically an appealing project also for countries to join the EU and typically appealing for our population. But I think the fact of the matter is, and that's why we are having this debate, is that there is a significant degree of, if I may say, frustration, to say the least. People don't see that they benefit because they don't benefit from sharing of wealth. People also feel that the situation may be unfair. And that is being felt throughout. It's not unique in the history of the European Union. We go through different waves and different cycles, as we all know. Some of you will remember that the first social action program of the European Union in 1974, responding also to the oil crisis, that it actually had a number of objectives that are still very dear to our heart today. Think about full and better employment. Think about improving living and working conditions. And think about the involvement of management and labor 
in the economic and social decisions of the European Union. Those three objectives of 74 are still something which are very pertinent today. But it's not only at the moment of reaction to a difficult situation or a crisis. We also want to stay on course at the moment that things are going well. Some of you will remember the 2000 social agenda. This was actually an agenda that was put together at the peak of a cycle. And here the leitmotiv was also on social policy as a productive factor. That social policy does contribute and can contribute and should contribute to economic development. So on the European integration project, focusing on economic development, this is economic development that should result in social progress. So it should be widely shared. One should be able to benefit from it. But also, in the European model, the economic and social policy are to be mutually reinforcing. They should reinforce one another. Think, for instance, about high-quality labor, highly skilled labor, taking care of the health of people also to be able to, to perform at work. I mean, these are very important ingredients also from a social policymaking perspective. So in our view, the reference to inclusive growth captures both of those dimensions. And even if we do know that there is a signs of worry, that there are signs of frustration, which are even deeper within the Euro area than they are amongst the, 20, the 28. I have a number of points that I, I would like to make, and I'm looking at Salt whether he can grant me a few seconds or not, because otherwise I'll pick him up later on, because um, I don't want to don't want to monopolize the discussion, but clearly there are a couple of issues on the facts and the figures on the divergence that I would like to raise. There are clearly a number of issues, I think, on the immediate policy responses. For instance, if you think of the bad work that has been done on youth employment and helping young people to connect to the labor market or to get back into a training and an education, and then obviously also on the social pillar, but I think it would be fair that I leave this for the next round and questions. I think that's really a crucial issue, the integration of the young, yeah. so if you could, let's say, spend one or at most two, two minutes on, on that issue, if it's possible, that would okay. be appreciated. Okay, if you want me to do it now, I'll be very happy to do so, because one of the things that we have seen is that, as particularly the young people who have been most negatively affect by, affected by the financial and economic crisis that started in 2008. And there has been an action at the level of the European Union to support the member states in going and to address this. And I also want to underline this, that it is a partnership. It is not solely EU, it's not solely member states, but we try to work together not just between public authorities, but also with social partners, also with representatives of civil society. So it's an inclusive also in terms of the partnership on that. We have launched a youth guarantee on which we will present the report now on the 4th of, uh, of October, youth, uh, youth guarantee and a youth employment initiative. The youth guarantee boils down to a structural reform measure that tries to prevent that any young person can be lost, that you can have anyone in a lost generation. Because it's an initiative that after four months that somebody is either out of school or is not in a job, to be reconnected to the system for access to work, training, an internship, uh, apprenticeship, in order to bring it back in. And we have been funding this from the European uh, Union budget. And we just now, um, beefed up the, uh, the financial resources with another 1 billion euro. 
really trying to help to connect to bringing in young people, a structural reform. That means helping young people to come in, but also with the financial support from the European Union, where we have right now at least already one four million young people who, thanks also to the European taxpayer, have been giving a new chance, a new opportunity. It's part of a collective responsibility. So I'm going to leave it to that, but obviously there's a lot more detail to this, but I'm happy to come back to any of that. So, so, so many thanks for, for this, describing why it is so fundamental in the EU inclusive growth and also many of the initiatives, including the youth unemployment. So, Jana, let <coughs> Thank you very much, Salt, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you to Bruegel for organizing this event and for inviting Social Platform to be, to be here. I know that there's been some collaboration and, and we're very um, thankful of the insightful research that Bruegel is offering and hopefully this report will add to that. Um, Social Platform is a very broad platform of 47 civil society European networks uh, representing, so myself, as I'll introduce me, I am... <laughs> My day job, Secretary General of Eurochild, uh, which brings together organizations working with and for children on, in, across the U Europe and the European Union. Um, but the platform brings together those uh, working for women's rights, for disability, for anti-poverty, um, uh, both service providers and rights-based activists. Um, so we're a very broad platform, but I think the main message that we have here in relation to this topic is that the members of our members are working on the ground with some of the most vulnerable people in our societies and what they are witnessing in their day-to-day -day work is an increasing fragmentation, increasing vulnerabilities and very worryingly reduction of more constructive or positive support for people with care or um, support needs and we believe that this is the consequence of decades of neglect of the so in value of social inclusion so Stefan did say and recalled very importantly the, the article 3 of the, the treaty and efforts that go back to 1974 um, of trying to put social into the heart of the European Union agenda but our experience of that has been that it is very much an afterthought, that it is very much something that happens as an effort to, to tackle the negative results of a system that has been prioritizing economic growth at the neglect of inclusion and a blind faith in the markets and competition and focusing on economic efficiency and productivity. So we've seen years of erosion of social protection policies, fair and progressive taxation to redistribute wealth, and we're looking at a society where people are increasingly seen either as consumers or productive factors, or for those that we work with, sometimes as perceived as a drain on society or public resources. So we feel that we are living in an increasingly materialistic world where even the public services, education, early childhood, health, becoming increasingly commoditized products to buy. And you ask why it matters. Well, for us, this let the growing levels of inequality that are evident across Europe 
are feeding feelings of disenfranchisement and hopelessness in the societies, which in turn leads to greater alienation with our political systems. And it's a climate where leaders who are pushing simple solutions for complex problems are gaining increasing credibility, where fears and prejudices in our societies are gaining increasing permission to be expressed. And indeed, those who express those fears and prejudices are gaining, are attracting a growing following. So we believe that societies have grown in a way that they are skewed in favor of a richer few. And this is creating fragmentation and making us more vulnerable. And fundamentally, we believe that inclusive societies are more resilient societies. And ultimately, it is very costly on the economy to pick up the pieces of a more fragmented society where growing numbers are feeling alienated and unable to contribute meaningfully. So the question now is, are we on the cusp of a paradigm shift? So as a social platform, we see the only way to move forward is a complete paradigm shift. And we welcome the fact that OECD, ILO, IMF, the World Bank, there is an increasing recognition that inequalities are bad for the economy and that we need to promote social cohesion as a way to foster economic growth. We remain optimistic that the pillar of social rights that is now under consultation and led um, by Stefan and his team in the commission could be an important window of opportunity. We are advocating for more standards around the European Union, including, including both legislation and softer instruments. Part of this is around quality jobs and living wages, improving working conditions. But it's also fundamentally for our constituencies the right to live in dignity for everybody in society, regardless of their employment status. So this is about ensuring access to social protection and to quality services for the old and for the young, and for those unable to work because of disability or illness, and those who simply are unable to find work. So we're encouraging more benchmarks, and I think the key question is how we can support implementation and rigor in, in strengthening, increasing quality and provision of individualized services for those with support and care needs. In 2013, the European Commission and the previous European Commission launched the social investment package, which among other things included a recommendation on investing in children, which is very dear to my own heart and my own organization, because it talked about investment, not cost of social, um, social protection and services. Um, for the investing in children recommendation, it's around ensuring adequate access to adequate resources. So whether that be um, in the workplace, but also minimum income, also <coughs> access to affordable services so women can go back to work and men can go back to work with children, um, and the quality of those services. So designing services around the individual so that the individual feels growing autonomy and is able to build their own capacities. And that's fundamentally where we see the economic value is that by investing in enabling services and building autonomy, we are ultimately creating a society where everybody has a contribution to make and this will um, have a long-term economic value. 
So what is the growth model? And I think, there, uh, to, to be fair, among the social platform members, there are those that would question the growth element of inclusive growth in the sense that are we looking more generally at sustainable development? And clearly, you know, the, we see and feel that the sustainable development goals are potentially a, a very important tool through which we can support a greater paradigm shift across Europe. Because we think that there are clear limits to the current economic model being based around global competitiveness, exports, and we think that there is a much greater need to focus on stimulating local sources of growth, local <coughs> demand, strengthening domestic demand through investing in social policies and services. And another key issue of inclusive growth is the whole dimension of democratization. So how can we strengthen the democracies in our societies, which is a product of investing in social policies as well? And for us, and I think from my perspective as a children's rights organization, inclusiveness is about promoting the sharing of power and responsibility Responsibility, meaning though in, so all our constituencies who are those vulnerable in societies do not need support that replaces their own capacities, but builds their own ability to respond to the environment in which they are. And that we, can sh we should and we can be building their capacity to have more control over their own lives. Stefan opened his speech by saying that this is not a macroeconomic issue, this is about values and this is about the ethics of the societies that we grow up in. And I just wanted to close with quotes that I've heard that for me resonate with where we are today and why it is so important that we have a complete paradigm shift. And it says that we need to be today more communal in an age that is overly individualistic. We need to be more morally minded <coughs> in an age that is overly utilitarian. We need to be more spiritually literate in an age that is overly materialistic. And we need to be more emotionally literate in an age that is overly cognitive. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. Just if I can have a very short follow-up question. I mean, you talked about uh, a paradigm shift. Um, uh, which, which is needed after after decade of long decades of neglected social inclusion, and you mentioned a number of international organisations <coughs> like the OECD, World Bank, <coughs> IMF, ILO. But if I look at Europe, and certainly European Commission is also there. I mean, definitely. But if I look at Europe, I mean, but also in other countries, most of social policies are national. So, so my question to you that we clearly see this paradigm shift at at let's say international, supranational, institutional level, but do you also observe such a, such a movement in, uh, at the national level between national governments, political parties, established parties, brand new parties, radical parties? Uh, I think, I mean, it w the evidence suggests across Europe that we have an increasing polarization of our political systems across the Europe and mainstream parties are really uh, losing traction. Um, and I said in my, in my speech around the, the challenge that we have in the current climate of pushing more complex solutions to complex problems. So there's, there is, unfortunately, um, a sort of polarization in many political debates at national level. Um, but I think that 
we are in an era where we're looking for an understanding of the complexity. So what they always say is that you can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that you created it with. And we have problems in our societies. So we have some leaders, I'm not saying as many as we would like, but we have some leaders who are out there who are trying to gain a greater understanding of, of what inclusive societies mean and how we can develop models of social and economic development which are more are inclusive and sustainable. And, and we did achieve the sustainable development goals. Again, it's a sort of a global level, but it was driven by a number of national leaders. Um, and I think that there are, there are those among, I, I remain optimistic, that there are those uh, at, at national level who, who do have a, a better understanding and can lead with ideas and solutions that are suitable to today's problems. Thank you very much, also for closing with an optimistic note. <clears throat> now, <coughs> Tim, the, the floor is yours now. Thank you so much. So good morning. Uh, I am uh, Tim Murphy. I'm MasterCard's uh, General Counsel, member of the board of our Center for Inclusive Growth. Uh, we are uh, delighted to be uh, supporting this morning's program and the report that's uh, been issued by, uh, by Zolt and his team. Uh, it's part of our commitment to um, this new paradigm of public-private partnerships in helping to solve some of uh, some of the world's most intractable problems, and our center is very much focused on uh, thought leadership in the area of uh, of inclusive growth uh, globally. Um, and I think the opportunity of this report is to advance the dialogue uh, here in Europe uh, beyond the conversations of crisis and managing crisis to. Um, a new trajectory for uh, you know this continent in terms of uh, in terms of uh, growth that is both um, sustainable and active, but also uh, just. Um, the the answer to the question is in why is inclusive growth uh, important is really I think uh, very simple. It is it, it's absolutely essential. Um, the, the world has um, achieved extraordinary reductions in uh, overall poverty rates worldwide. At the same time, we're seeing extraordinary increases in, in inequality, both within countries and within societies uh, and among them. And the, the data points really are quite stark. Um, the reality is that unless those issues are addressed, and they'll be addressed by different um, countries and different societies in different ways, uh, we can expect um, ongoing political instability we're seeing the implications of that, uh, Gunter mentioned this morning, uh, I think throughout uh, the West, uh, including in the presidential election in the United States, where you really can argue that a real deep sense of inequality and exclusion of populations uh, is driving uh, a, a protest vote that could have extraordinary consequences uh, for uh, the, the entire Western world, uh, including potentially undoing now generations of trade policy. Um, so, so those are not prospective challenges, they're real ones and they're, uh, they're with us today. I think the challenge in Europe is that um, uniquely in the world, given the achievements here in terms of relative social equality and, and near eradication of, of poverty, uh, that inclusive growth means something different um, than in Europe than, than it does in other places. Uh, so often we find in our work that inclusive growth really is about, in our business and in the work our center does, about giving consumers access to basic financial services. There's still two billion people in the world today who don't have that. That is not an issue uh, fundamentally uh, in Europe. 
Um, and so there is a different set of challenges. Um, we still see that fewer, half, fewer than half of Europeans uh, feel that there's a high level of financial inclusion uh, in their societies, and that's notwithstanding uh, the achievements uh, here in terms of social, uh, relative social equality and, um, uh, and, and eradication of poverty. So there's a perception problem uh, and a problem that's a different dimension than it is in uh, so many other places. Um, some of the thinking of our center has really focused on uh, an assessment of inclusion as access for individuals to networks. Um, uh, all sorts of networks, ne networks of jobs, networks of employment, networks of education, financial services networks, data networks, information, uh, communications, media, and so on. And if you think of inclusion as uh, access to networks for <coughs> individuals, um, I think that provides some way of thinking about how inclusive growth needs to be considered differently in Europe. It is not simply about access to a bank account, it is about access to this wider set of networks and which of those issues um, are people feeling and our societies feeling are, 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 where are the gaps and how, those, how can those be addressed? And I think today's report is useful in that it provides a very robust set of data points uh, for policymakers here in Europe to uh, consider uh, those issues. Um, I'll make one sort of final uh, comment, which is I do think as we look at the world that is evolving today, uh, particularly the extraordinary disruptions that the di digital revolution across multiple industries uh, um, both is making now and will continue to make in the future, getting policy right on inclusive growth uh, in Europe, in the United States, and other major OECD economies, in fact, around the world, uh, is essential because it is not, we cannot assume a steady, steady state. The reality is the digital economy will provide fundamental disruptions going forward to large scales uh, or sort of large sectors of the economy that employ large numbers of people. And if you just think about the prospect of automated transportation uh, and the scope of the economy that's based on people driving things, vehicles, trucks, taxis, and so on, uh, on, those are emerging challenges actually brought on by technology revolutions that will, um, uh, will challenge, I think, all societies. And, and unless there is a very strong basis for in inclusion today um, with an equal commitment to dynamic growth in economies, uh, I think we face uh, uh, even deeper challenges ahead. So, I don't mean to end on a negative note. I think, in fact, though there is much creative disruption uh, that will also create jobs and opportunity, um, but the, the, it is choppy waters ahead, and so anything that can be done now in advance and in advancing policy on these issues, I think, is enormously important. So um, that's what uh, I can offer you this morning. Many thanks, Tim. Um, since you come from the U.S., um, may, I, may I ask you a question, what lessons Europe can draw from the U.S.? And the reason I ask is that is that U.S. is clearly among the most unequal societies, at least among advanced countries, and, um, and certainly public policies may have also contributed. Why, if you look at Europe, I mean, Europe, as also the previous speakers discussed, we have major problems, but at least Europe is not as unequal as the U.S. So if you could, what, what, what would you suggest European leaders, what could be the main lessons to, to avoid uh, a kind of U.S. type uh, 
largely, uh, largely inequality in, in Europe? Um, yeah, that's a, a w wonderful question. I think you're, it's extraordinary that you're asking Americans for advice on avoiding uh, inequality, but, but thank you. Um, I'm sort of not sure what to do with that. Um, I think the, uh, I, I might say, suggest hazard two things, uh, and I was concerned you were going to ask about Trump, so, so that's good news. Um, one, one is, um, um, I, I think that w one needs to be very humble in terms of offering suggestions across, uh, 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 as between the U.S. and Europe. The two, the two uh, communities have, are, just are grounded in different cultures. There, there is a greater, and I think will be in the future, uh, a greater tolerance for income inequality and asset inequality in the U.S. than there ever would be in, uh, in Europe. And, um, you can argue whether that's good or bad. There are core issues of ethics here, but, but those choices I think the societies have made uh, again, again and again. And the U.S. has, um, um, uh, has just a different history. I might suggest just, though, two things. W one is that the, um, um, there has been an ongoing public dialogue in the United States for now gen at least two, two, three generations on how to create a multicultural society where all people, no matter where they come from, have um, some degree of access, at least to opportunity, if not to, not to income. I think when you look at the challenges facing Europe today on migration issues and refugees and so on, I would just suggest that, that because that will be and it is now and will continue to be an issue here, um, there are opportunities to look and learn from the U.S. experience, and probably learn as much from failure as from success, but there's been a bit of both. That's one thought. Um, the other is really, you know, at the end of the day, the United States is a vast, very consistent, continental-sized market. Um, a lot of issues of income and, and asset inequality, I think, are can be sustained, or greater degrees of inequality can be sustained there because there is labor mobility, there is mobility of people, um, there is, you know, if you're not, if you can't, it's not true everywhere, but in some places you can pick up and find, find opportunities somewhere else. You can go west at some level. And so there's an ongoing dialogue within Europe on mobility, labor mobility and mobility of opportunity that um, there's, there's further work, I, and I know that's an issue for the commission and, and work to be done, but I think the, um, that's another thought I might give you. Thank you very, very much. <coughs> now, Luca, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for the invitation. I don't know if all of you are aware of uh, what the ETUC is. Anyway, the ETUC is the European Trade Union Confederation, representing more or less 90 national confederations in 35 European countries, uh, 45 million uh, workers, more or less. Uh, first, uh, first question I think we should address in this uh, very interesting debate is if we have or not uh, inclusive growth in Europe at the moment. And uh, my reply is no, we don't have it. Uh, we see uh, slight signs of economic recovery in few countries, in few sectors uh, of the European economy, but the level of inequalities, uh, social exclusion, uh, unemployment uh, remain uh, still uh, unacceptably high uh, and uh, is reaching, unfortunately, the levels of the US. So we are not so far from the US in this respect uh, and we have let's say, developed uh, increasing inequalities in the last uh, five, seven years uh, uh, in comparison to the past. 
the second question is why we don't have uh, inclusive growth and even less sustainable development, as Jana said. I think the, also this notion, this concept should be uh, tackled in our, in our discussions. Uh, despite of the treaties that uh, Stefan uh, mentioned, uh, this is obviously, uh, first of all, uh, unfortunately, a macroeconomic question because uh, we have put in place some probably wrong macroeconomic policies in the last decade, and especially after the crisis, the, the global financial and then economic crisis exploded uh, also in Europe. And uh, if we don't analyze which are the problems in our macroeconomic strategy, it will be very unlikely. We can really uh, pave paths for inclusive growth uh, for the future. Uh, what we see is that, first of all, the first pillar, I mean, on which we based our macroeconomic strategy to face uh, the crisis was uh, budgetary constraints. This was uh, the first element of our economic governance, uh, the first fundamental mantra of our, uh, of our uh, semester process. Uh, the public budgets uh, seem to be the real origin and the real cause of our, uh, of our economic crisis. Uh, I don't think it's like that, but anyway, all our policy was based on that. And all the so-called structural reforms we have put in place were aimed, first of all, at reducing deficit and public debt. Uh, this is uh, in front of us. We cannot deny this, uh, this fact. But the problem is that the consequences of this, uh, to be very simple, I mean, uh, uh, were on the one side a collapse in public and then uh, consequently, also private investment in Europe. In the last years, we are close to zero in terms of uh, public and private investment in most of the European uh, countries, in some countries even under zero, uh, in comparison to the previous decades. Uh, and the other consequence uh, was that uh, there was no money for uh, the most in that uh, uh, countries, member states, to repay back uh, the debt. Uh, because it's clear that if you depress the public finances, it's impossible to recover from the situation, this spiral, this downward spiral that we have in our public macroeconomic policies. The second element, the second pillar at the basis of this macroeconomic strategy was export. We were and we are still convinced that export is uh, the only way for the European economy to recover. But since uh, our export goes for, let's say, 70% uh, to other European countries and not outside the European Union or outside the single market. It's clear that basing mainly our macroeconomic strategy for growth uh, only uh, or mainly on export uh, led to internal competition between countries, internal competition between sectors within uh, the countries, and so to the creation of uh, incredibly significant uh, macroeconomic imbalances in the single market. So the single market, instead of competing as a single market towards the rest of the world, uh, competed internally, uh, creating these uh, uh, incredible uh, macroeconomic uh, imbalances. But you know, to do all that, uh, to compete on export, mainly internal export, if not only, and on the other side, uh, basing our macroeconomic strategy to face the crisis on budgetary constraints, um, 
there were not so many tools to achieve these results because, uh, uh, let's say, the monetary policy is no more available as a tool. Uh, there were no other macroeconomic tools in terms of investment or internal demand. And so the three elements that have been used to achieve this, this strategy were uh, cuts to the social protection systems, pensions, social protection in general, uh, unemployment benefits, and family benefits, etc. These cuts have happened almost everywhere uh, in the European uh, Union. Wage depression, uh, we had a collapse uh, in real wages in Europe, almost in all uh, the European uh, countries. So the competition was based mainly on labor costs because there were no other uh, elements uh, in this respect. And then labor market flexibility. The large part of the structural reforms that have been put in place in uh, Europe in the last decade were uh, for labor market flexibility, uh, very often without security. So even the model of flex security was not applied. Uh, we had mainly, if not only, uh, flexibility in the, in the labor market. Uh, as this macroeconomic strategy produce any effect in terms of recovery, we don't see uh, enormous effects. On the contrary, we have uh, uh, stagnation, still stagnation in the economy, but the main problem is that we had an incredible drop in productivity uh, in most of the European countries. So the, the paradigm that was saying uh, via reducing labor costs and introducing more flexibility, we will increase productivity and competitiveness, this is simply not true. It didn't happen productivity is stagnating or even falling down still and still uh, in the European economy. So it's clear that there is something wrong in this, uh, in this strategy, and the consequences of the strategies, as I said at the beginning, are inequalities, social exclusion, poverty, unemployment, uh, no jobs available for people. And we are absolutely convinced that this is behind xenophobia and populism, more than migration. You know, migrants and refugees are a scapegoat, but the problem for people that voted for and are still voting for populistic and xenophobic uh, parties in the European Union and also outside the European Union, the US example with Trump is really, is really emblematic in this respect. What's behind all that is the fact that people cannot find a job, if, even if they find a job, is not a job that corresponds to their skills and competences and to their aspiration for a better life and better uh, living and working conditions. Uh, it's a precarious job very often, and there is not a social environment around this job to make sure that they can be reassured that there is a better future for themselves and also for their children. This is unfortunately the reality. If you look at the um, at the votes that have been the flows, I mean, in the in the in the in the in the vote for uh, the British referendum on the one side and on the other side uh, the recent elections uh, that took place in some uh, German lenders, uh, it's crystal clear that the regions and the areas where there are more migrants are the regions and the areas that voted for Remain in the UK, mm. and that uh, are voting for, let's say are less voting for populistic parties 
On the contrary, uh, the areas and the regions in the UK, but also in Germany and in other parts of Europe, where these populistic movements or on the, on the other side Brexit prevailed, uh, are exactly the areas where globalization hit hard, where there are less jobs available, where unemployment is higher, and where there is more poverty and more uh, social uh, exclusion uh, together with uh, inequalities. So what should we do to rebuild up a good environment, a positive environment for inclusive growth and sustainable development. And my opinion is that we should try to think about a, a different uh, macroeconomic model, first of all, that should be linked to a different political, uh, political model and inspiration. Uh, we should start thinking that the economy should be at the service of the people and not the other way around. And unfortunately, this is not the case uh, uh, at the moment, uh, not only in Europe, unfortunately, also in other parts of, uh, uh, of the world. And we should try, at least for some elements, uh, to look at other countries and other experiences. For example, it's crystal clear that uh, the US are not exact, uh, the best example in the world for equality. But on the other side, they are probably the best example uh, of, in the world uh, uh, for a, mac a different macroeconomic policy based on investment and internal demand, uh, for example, if we compare uh, this model to the European model in terms of austerity measures, etc., etc. So we see three areas to conclude on which we could make a difference. The first area is investment. How to relaunch investment? The only way to create new jobs and quality jobs in Europe is to relaunch investment. Uh, there is no hope that private investment will come without triggering private investment via public investment. Public investment that should be based obviously on um, infrastructures, education and training, innovation and research, or a, a new European industrial policy. So all elements that can really create the conditions for growth, but should be, there should be also equal and social investment in this, uh, in this, in this perspective. Uh, there is an initiative going on, as you know, is the Juncker plan, the investment plan that was launched by the European Commission uh, one year and a half ago. Uh, now uh, President Juncker launched the second phase of this investment plan. This is a good element. Uh, but you know, there are still some limits in this initiative because uh, there is no public money in there. Um, the president of the European Commission is still supporting the theory that is not up to the, the European Union to invest public money in the European countries. Uh, uh, we don't think this is the case. It's exactly the contrary because some countries are simply not able. They don't have the conditions to mobilize public investment. So without an impulse coming from the European Union, it will be impossible to do it. And the other limit is that that plan, unfortunately, most of the money went uh, to countries that are not exactly the ones more in need or the ones where you have the weakest sectors that should be supported by an investment plan. So there should be some way of rethinking the shape and the, the targets of this, of, of this investment plan, uh, but we have to absolutely recognize that this is a very important initiative. There is a second element we should consider to build up a new, a different model that is, uh, that is 
how we can relaunch and uh, recover the European social model. The European social model has been considered for years as an obstacle to competitiveness and growth and even to productivity. But this is not the case. If you look at countries like the Scandinavian countries, for example, it's clear that this model, the social model, is, uh, uh, is, is a factor for boosting competitiveness, productivity, and uh, inclusive, inclusive growth. So we have to come back to some uh, minimum standards, but also to some proactive tools to be established at the European level to make sure that this model can be recovered everywhere. In this respect, the social pillar, this initiative for the pillar of social rights is a very, also in this case, good initiative. But we have to make sure that in that box we put concrete tools for people, that we can really launch initiatives that people can understand as an added value that can make a difference for their lives in terms of better standards, in terms of concrete tools to be put in place in the different countries, in terms of improving their living and working conditions, and also reinforcing their rights in the economy and in the society. The last point for me is about demand. As I said, investment and demand should be the two pillars on which we could build up a different economic model. Uh, also because 70%, as I said, of our products remain in Europe. And so uh, depressing internal demand means that we are depressing the economy. We have, on the contrary, to relaunch internal demand in a very proactive way with appropriate public and private, uh, and private policy and investment. But you know, demand is, first of all, the purchasing power of people. And purchasive power of people means their wages, their salaries, their income. And what we did in the last decade was to depress wages and incomes of people. Uh, if you depress wages and incomes, it's automatically a consequence, the fact that also investment will be depressed. Private investment first and then consequently also public investment because if you depress wages, you are depressing also tax incomes, you are depressing also social contribution incomes and even the social model uh, becomes not, no more sustainable in the medium and long term. So there is a big issue in Europe at the moment for a pay rise for people. We need to relaunch internal demand by changing the wage share in the economy. Uh, a big campaign is going to be launched by us together with others in this uh, respect. But you know, it's not only a matter of social justice or of tackling inequalities. Uh, having a general campaign and a general initiative for increasing purchasing power and wages uh, and to change the wage share in the European economy, it's a fundamental issue for the European economy, because without doing that, it will be almost impossible to relaunch inclusive growth and sustainable, and sustainable development. And it's clear, this is my very last point, that collective bargaining, social dialogue, industrial relations, uh, the contribution that social partners and civil society can bring through these tools to the economy is something on which we should really invest a lot. Because, you know, without the actors in the economy and in the society, it's very difficult uh, from politicians, uh, from institutions, uh, uh, to bring really an hope uh, to people. We need to involve the society if we want to build up a better society. Thank you. Thank you very much, much uh, Luca, also for bringing back the, the macroeconomic questions, which <coughs> we also believe are, are quite important. Now, the time is running, but let me also have a very short question <coughs> to you on, on your forward-looking agenda. I mean, I think you very rightly argue that more investment is needed, and you're also very right in arguing that 
public investment should drive and, and should basically <coughs> uh, push uh, private investment. But you know, the European Commission does not have funds. I mean, it disposes the EU budget, which is, which is more or less fixed. I mean, it, it, there is very limited flexibility. So practically all the money uh, are at national hands. So my question is that, you know, what, what you believe the Commission to, can do with, uh, beyond saying member states that look, please invest more. Uh, but is there any, any other role that the Commission can, can do to promote more investment? I will say two things. The first one is that you are right. Uh, public investment is first of all in the, in the hands of the member states, at least of those member states that have the money to invest. But the problem is that uh, we are in this ironical situation that the countries that would have money to invest don't invest and don't boost internal demand. And, uh, and these are the countries that uh, accumulated major surplus in the last years, I mean. Also, I, I mean, indirectly creating deficit in other countries. Uh, and this is part of the macroeconomic imbalances we have. So the first element is that the European Commission the European Commission is already doing that, but anyway, should insist again and again, also in the Council, to convince the countries that could invest to do it. But, you know, uh, this is not enough, because investing in Germany or in the Netherlands or in, not in fin Finland at the moment is not exactly the best example, or in Sweden, I mean, uh, to generate a better economy for all uh, will have in the medium term positive effects only in those countries. Uh, the problem is that what can we do at the European level to have a, a public investment policy that can bring some advantage and some positive consequences also in countries like Greece or like Spain or like Portugal, uh, where there is no public money available to generate uh, public investment? Uh, there are only two possibilities in this respect. Okay, Mr. Draghi made something in the sense that, okay, the quantitative, quantitative easing that was boosted by uh, the European Central Bank was useful, but you know, most of this money went to the banks uh, to save some banks and to try to stabilize the, the financial system. So it didn't go to the real economy. Uh, so the only possibility for the European Commission is to put together the debt and to issue euro bonds. This is something we have dis been discussing for years and years. Uh, there is a, a formal discussion about that to say, okay, probably to do that we need to change the treaties. It's not possible. There is not a political willingness to do that, etc., etc. Probably is a dead end path. I mean, but there is another possibility, and it's a possibility that could be included in the second phase Juncker plan, and is the fact that the European Investment Bank. <coughs> Uh, is a bank, as alliance to uh, issue uh, project bonds to support European projects for investment. There is nothing to do with uh, fiscal transfer in that. Uh, so there, will, there, there wouldn't be, let's say, bad and negative reactions from the countries that don't want to have any fiscal transfer in the European economy. The capital of the EIB has been already reinforced a few years ago. Uh, also to launch uh, uh, the first phase Juncker's plan. So it's possible with the same vehicle and with the same tools uh, simply to issue bonds from the European Investment Bank uh, to reinforce the European budget and to launch an extraordinary plan for public investment. This is possible without changing the rules. It's only a matter of political will. The problem is, do we have a political will to relaunch uh, inclusive growth and sustainable development in Europe? Big question mark, I'm not sure the reply is yes. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm sure other panelists would, would also have a view on that. <clears throat> but since time is running, let me, let me open the floor for, for questions and, and comments. And then we collect a couple of questions and comments, and then we also give back the floor to all panelists, so you will also have the chance to, to respond to uh, initial remarks of each other. So please, uh, when, you, when you talk, please uh, introduce briefly yourself and, uh, and try to be, be short uh, in your question or comment. was putting forward the argument that Europe is a convergence machine. Uh, I kind of feel compelled to make reference to that because we're um, actually looking at a sequel to that report because we're having somewhat second thought um, on the topic. Um, Europe is a convergence machine in terms of countries uh, that have acceded to the European Union have seen uh, per capita income growth very fast. So there's a convergence in, in living standards looking at countries. But if you look across the European Union as a whole, actually growth has not been inclusive for a long time. Um, even if you go back to the 1990s, um, if you look at growth incidence curves, the bottom 40 have not been growing as much as the rest of the population. Um, and that somewhat, you know, didn't, somehow didn't get the attention um, at the time then, but it's getting attention now because it really is about um, the future viability of the European Union and of growth in the future. Because in a way, the question, you know, why does it matter? It matters because unless growth is inclusive, there's a big question mark over growth in the future. Um, you know, Europe is, is uh, undergoing demographic decline, aging, um, you can't, uh, so, you know, shrinking populations need to be more productive, need to be uh, um, at their full potential, and um, an inclu uh, in uh, exclusion or, or lack of inclusion today manifests itself in, um, uh, you know, inequality of opportunities, um, uh, which, you know, then have um, their, their payback in the future uh, or lack thereof. So there seems to be a lot of uh, tolerance in countries for um, educational inequality um, at a time when, in fact, um, you know, shrinking workforces, you know, everyone in the shrinking workforce needs to be way more productive than, um, than they will be based on current um, educational uh, outcomes across the European uni uh, Union. You have uh, um, labor market duality that is being tolerated, surprisingly. Um, so the number of questions um, um, on, on in terms of how inequality manifests itself today, but it manifests itself very evidently in a lack of um, opportunity, um, and that is going to be a big problem going forward because it undermines people's ability to, to succeed in the future. My name is Dalia Marin. I'm a professor of economics at the University of Munich and a senior fellow at Bruegel. I would like to take up uh, what Luca said. I think it's very important to uh, take the macro view on inclusive growth because um, we know that uh, in Southern Europe we have now a situation of depression comparable with the uh, 1930s and there is much, uh, there is very little that has been done uh, to, to solve that problem. And the, the, the way to do it is uh, to invest more. Um, so in order to solve the social, uh, the social problem in these countries, you at, at in the first case, you have to have a, a macro policy uh, that supports uh, growth in these countries. But there is another thing that is going on, and which is not the macro side, but the 
um, the, the trend side, the structural side, which is the, uh, the new technologies that we are facing. And these uh, require different policies. And um, we have to discuss this. What, are these what kind of policies would we need in order to address these problems that come from, from technical change that is disrupting the economies? I mean, one indication is that men are without work. Young men are without work. And um, this is potentially very um, dangerous. Um, but there is one thing that uh, um, textbook economics says is that if you um, want, if trade openness has distributional effects, and we know that this is a major driver of, of inequality is openness. So therefore, the idea was in order to comp comp you have to compensate the losers in order to uh, have open economies. But when you look at the past, we haven't done this. There is very little, uh, there has been very little policies that actually compensated the losers from openness. Uh, there is a, an important study that showed that actually um, more open societies have a larger welfare state. So in order to support openness, what we need is we need larger welfare states rather than smaller welfare states. Let me stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, there's a question there. <coughs> Good morning, Jason Lane from MasterCard. A key question I think you asked about the US, um, which I'd like to sort of invite the panel to sort of provide some questions on. So technically, I agree the, the, the concept that uh, the US doesn't necessarily have a social response network or um, a response environment similar to Europe, but the market has responded. So for the average consumer, somebody who's financially excluded, they're able to sort of get access, you know, informally through, um, you know, uh, the, the, the financial network. There are sort of market responses to that. And more importantly, to this last point about disruptive technology, they have access to um, you know a, a mobile phone, and of course that is a supercomputer in today's modern terms, and that can transform how they sort of can interact within society. And so, at the most grassroots level, they get to have access to um, you know discount rates and whatnot, so that they can actually also socially benefit as much as sort of the middle class um, and and those that are included in the former society. I think that's a key learning, and I also think there's a there's a, um, a response from states versus the federal government in the U.S. where learnings can be can be made. But what is Europe doing? What is Europe doing to sort of allow the Romanian who goes to Stockholm to get access to um, a mobile telephone that can then allow them to engage in what has become probably the leading digital market in Europe? This is sort of, I think, some of the key questions, not just from a policy, but from a tools perspective that I'd like to sort of understand what the panel thinks. And then, Luca, to your point, yesterday I met with um, DG Echo, and uh, they're sort of very concerned about um, no longer is it just about responding to a humanitarian crisis, a la what's going on in Greece, but really how to sort of merge this concept of short-term response to crises, but really more the long-term sort of development aspect as well. And I was surprised to learn that in the European Union, their only mandate to help is really today in Greece. So shouldn't the Commission sort of be rethinking how to deploy some of that 2 billion euros to support some of the investment that's been asked here in light of a policy shift, 
not just to respond to humanitarian crises, but how to actually um, build a sustainable development element for the, these countries that can, can't help themselves. So Greece is there. So just your thoughts on those two questions would be welcome. Many thanks. Yeah, there is a question over here. Good morning, Bastien Castillo from the Central Economic Council. Um, I have two very short questions. The first one is for Mr. Hermans. Um, so you talk about um, all the great promises in the treaty, and my question would be, how do you reconcile that with um, all the, the policies pushed forward in countries like Greece, for instance? Um, I wouldn't call that inclusive and Actually, it's not even growth in the first place. And so how do you reconcile the, what you said and what the European Commission is pushing forward in these countries? And the second is for um, all the, the speakers, except m uh, maybe for Mrs. Ainsworth, who made that clear. Um, so there are two arguments for inclusive growth that, uh, that uh, is mentioned uh, very often. Uh, the first one is because inequalities are creating political instabilities and so uh, are threatening the political status quo, basically. And the second is that um, inequalities are also threatening growth in the long term. So uh, these two conditions uh, for uh, you know, fighting for inclusive growth. But my question is then, uh, are you actually concerned um, um, about the human being behind the uh, inequality statistics instead of being very instrumental in promoting inclusive growth. So thank you. Um, <coughs> uh, I'm afraid uh, we have to uh, stop the, the, the questions because time is running a lot, and and I would also like our panelists to to respond. So we may perhaps go in the in the reverse order as as you as you spoke. So <coughs> Luca, we start with you. Feel free to respond to any any of the points um, you you wish to. Well, I fundamentally agree with all the remarks that have been made. I have only a few uh, very short comments. The first one is that uh, I fully agree on the fact that open societies uh, need to compensate losers, but the way to do that is to have a larger welfare state. This is exactly the Swedish model. Uh, it's not, it's not for, by coincidence that, for example, social partners, including trade unions in Sweden, are so in favor of free trade at the international level and trade agreements because they know that this will bring to their society some advantages in terms of the economy, but at the same time they will be also protected but from the unwanted consequences that free trade can bring because they have a very robust and very uh, uh, comprehensive and, and, and well-established uh, welfare state. So this is exactly, uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think the point. Um, the digital economy uh, creates uh, enormous opportunities, but also uh, a, large, uh, a, large, a large number of losers also in this case. Uh, it it would require, I mean, uh, a specific panel only to discuss this, I mean, but anyway, uh, we, we, are, we, are, we have in mind, I mean, that uh, the links between uh, the developments in the digital economy and also in the green economy, by the way, should be taken into account when we speak about uh, recovering the economy and finding new ways for sustainable development. Uh, 
Um, I agree also on the fact that to respond to any kind of humanitarian crisis, we have first of all to have in mind a fair macroeconomic policy, because it's clear that if we simply try to limit the damage that comes from uh, recession or from uh, a wrong macroeconomic policy, uh, we won't be successful at all. We need to boost, first of all, sustainable growth and, uh, and development in these countries, and we have to involve them uh, themselves, I mean, in making uh, sure that there are the conditions for, uh, for sustainable growth, uh, because this will be the only possibility in the medium and long term to tackle also the humanitarian and social problems that are linked to, to their crisis. And uh, in this respect, uh, um, uh, we obviously think all the time about the human being behind inequality and behind uh, crisis and social exclusion. Uh, this is exactly the sense of one of the sentences that I had in my presentation. It is the fact that we have to rethink the economy because we have to think about a new economic model that should serve people instead of uh, uh, considering people as an instrument for, uh, for the economy itself. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, just very briefly, I think, um, uh, you know, behind any inequality issue is a fundamental issue of ethics and how human beings are uh, treated in a human-centric model of uh, economic growth is, uh, needs to be at the core of our thinking. So I couldn't agree more with that point. Um, and there's a danger in thinking only in, in large policy terms and not about the, the true impact on people. Um, the, the only thing I would say is, is really that um, I do think the, the principle of openness produces winners and losers, and the losers need to be compensated in order for there to be uh, uh, just societies and the kind of growth we want is right. I think p countries will take different choices. That can be a large and extensive welfare state uh, like Sweden. It could also be uh, doubling down on investments in education, training, and so on in a more limited way. But the point is those issues are not being addressed s sufficiently now, and, and that um, across the West needs to be uh, needs to be addressed. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to take the opportunity um, of the comments just to hone in on one issue which is close to my heart, which is on early childhood education and care. Because I think, you know, if we're talking about equality of opportunity, we're seeing that the chances of people, the life chances, are determined largely by very early childhood experiences. So you can determine, to a large extent, um, poverty, disadvantage, um, to, to what happens in the earliest years. And there's a lot of neuroscience on the first three years, a lot of uh, evidence around investment in high quality, inclusive early childhood services that help the educational, cognitive, emotional, social development of children. And yet it's an illustrative um, example of, of the current macroeconomic climate where you actually, although the evidence is there, there is very little scope for public investment in high quality universal provision of child, early childhood education and care. So the Swedish example is you have a universal provision from the age of one um, tailored to, to allow in, uh, participation of all children. Um, and, and of course that's not replicated across very, very, very few countries. And indeed in many countries it's the way that they're seeing investment is through private investment. So you actually see the provision of early childhood education exacerbating existing social inequalities because crash services become on the market so if you have resource and you're a well-educated parent 
you put your child in a very high quality education and care where you get all kinds of stimuli and if you don't either they're not in any kinds of services so they are excluded or they're in low quality where you have high numbers of children for low numbers of very poorly paid and um, uh, poorly qualified uh, education um, care professionals. So, you know, it's illustrative of the, the dilemma that we face in society today. And I think that the way that the macroeconomic climate is going is that it's not supporting that massive public investment, which evidence would suggest will make a significant difference to building inclusive societies in the future. Thank you very much. Um, Stefan, please. <clears throat> no, I think this debate actually has covered quite some ground. Um, I think both from the contributions here at the table, but also from, from, the, from the questions and the comments that have been raised. Um, a few remarks from my side. Um, I think I want to zoom in first on the word dignity, because I think it is a very important question. Because the whole thing we are talking about on confidence, on trust, where people find themselves, I mean, it is centered around the dignity that people feel, the respect that they feel. It leads to the confidence and the trust. I think it's a very important ingredient in the, the debate. I also want to zoom in on the question on, on, on the paradigm shift. Um, I don't know whether there will be a major shift or not. That's beyond this debate today. But I just want to raise the fact that the entire debate, the consultation around the European pillar of social rights is exactly about a check against delivery. I mean, it is fair enough to have objectives, which you refer to as promises, but there are objectives of the European Union. It's one thing to have this objective, then there is also the factual reality. And I think this is a reality check. Um, and it's a reality check, not only on the past, but it's also a reality check, I think, already as we are looking to the future. It's a point Tim was also making, I think rightly so. We need to start looking more and more at new tra trajectories for growth. If, if we know that the digital will have a huge impact on us, I mean, we cannot simply sit and, and lean back. We have to take a much more active role on that. There are questions on how you overcome resistance in society when you do have disruptive innovation, that rather than saying it has to stop, that we do find ways to actually create jobs out of this, valuable jobs out of it. And it's a question of public policy at that moment in time to make sure that these are good jobs, quality jobs, that they can be social coverage being ensured for that. And will this be different from what we have today? possible, but we definitely need to ask this question. So it's very important to do this. We have to advance in our thinking. We have to look ahead. And this is actually part of the exercise around the pillar uh, on social rights as well. I also want to zoom in a little bit on the discussion we have had on the focus on the macroeconomic, focus on the microeconomic, on, on the different strands, on the demand and the supply. I think there are no simplistic solutions. That's part of the difficulty that we face. In, in practice, you end up with very complex policy mixes that have to be engineered and have to be thought through, that have to be monitored, monitored and have to be um, adjusted as we go around. I think it's also important to take that with us. And as much as we spend a lot of time in, in the portfolio of my commissioner, Commissioner Tesson, on, on the supply, I mean, outside portfolio, we spend a lot of attention also on the demand question and on other elements like small and medium-sized enterprises, questions on internal demand, questions on investment, because those hang together. We cannot isolate them from, from one another. It's the second point that I wanted to make. I also wanted to make a brief comment on the trade and on the openness. Um, I mean, we are firm believers that trade is a good thing for the economy. One out of seven jobs in the European Union 
rely directly on trade. So open borders is absolutely crucial for the European Union. But at the same time, we also see that there is a huge degree of opposition. A huge degree of opposition. Very well organized opposition, including for those who say that they want to create good jobs. So I think it's, it's a serious issue to, to address. And then there's the question on how do we handle this. This is the question on the compensation. I do see that in countries or in parts of a country where they do have a very good social welfare system, that there actually is a lot of opposition. So I, I think it's, it's an important question to address, I think, in terms of the pedagogics, as well as on the policy to come with this. Um, we typically get a lot of requests on compensation. And you know that is a European Globalization Adjustment Fund. That's fair enough. I mean, if I take, speak now about an example that I see in the country that I know best, the example of Caterpillar, I mean, the availability of actually to go out there and help people to find a job again, it's a very important thing. But it's a small element. What you actually also need, it's much more policy in terms of advancing, in terms of taking it on upfront and having much more broad policies, and I think that's actually what Tim was, was referring to, that go and address this. And I think that also is an important element. And last but not least, indeed on the convergence, because that's indeed the real worrying thing. So we're not looking forward to your report now, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we know the evidence already, and that is that the convergence machine has stopped. And that's indeed the most worrying thing. I mean, it's very worrying. Uh, even at, at the entire question for the, for, for the European Union as a whole. Um, but also, also on that, um, I think, and, and this coming back also on, it is possible to go and address something on this. When you think about, I mean, we have put in place a skills agenda, where, for instance, we offer a skills guarantee that those who are negatively affected actually can reconnect, that they can upgrade their skills, because we do know the way the labor market is developing, that a higher level of skills is being required. Actually, the, the, the way uh, we have now um, new data and the da data management actually enables you to actually look ahead on the basis of the trends that you can observe right here, right now. Okay? So that actually also should help us in order to guide into certain directions, uh, we have, for instance, foreseen uh, a blueprint for sectorial skills. You see that there are shifts in the industries taking place. How do you go and address this? And that, I think, is a very important part of the agenda. It's not only for the young people, but I think much more broadly in society, because typically the ones who don't have the skills are typically the ones who are losing out, and are typically the ones who find themselves in a situation as, as, as being, uh, um, putting remote uh, and, and putting out of the of the benefit of it. Thanks, that's all I want to say. So thank you very, very much to, to all four of you. I think we had a very rich discussion. We discussed many, many important topics. So <clears throat> given that the time, unfortunately, is, is running, uh, let me again just close this session. Again, thank you all of you. We will have now a very short coffee break, and then we continue with two more sessions. Thank you.